Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is... Cam Rogers, author of Quantum Break... Zero State. And it's based on... A very major um, video game release by Microsoft Studios. The game is produced by Remedy, and the book is released by Tor. So it's a, a, a it's kind of a global production, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's you're sort of wrapping wrapping all the the connections around the planet here. Hey guys, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> welcome to the me. show. Uh, yeah, it's a, it was a it was a major 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 undertaking. Uh, we worked on that game for I think maybe in excess of three three and a half four years. Um, that is a long uh, they, development cycle. Oh yeah, my. but that's got to be an intricate game. After reading this book, I don't even know how the game works. Uh, well, the, the game the game's really interesting in the sense that. Uh, no one's really tried anything quite like this before in the sense that, I mean, people have tried, you know, multimedia, transmedia. Um, but basically what we have with Quantum Break is we have uh, a marriage of um, like a third-person action-adventure shooter game uh, with strong time travel, time control elements blended with a high-quality live-action television show that we shot in Los Angeles uh, that comes in four parts and basically, how you play the game determines what happens in the show, and what happens in the show influences how you play the game. So, you know, you play one episode, and the actions that you take determines your director's cut of the first episode of the television show. Which, which, um, yeah. And uh, holy cow! And yeah, so, it's, it, it's, so it's, everybody honestly, plays a, the game. A, a really, I'm sorry. So everybody plays the game, and the general consensus guides what no. happens of the. Nope, nope, nope. How does nope, it work? Whatever, whatever decisions you make change the show. That's correct. That's correct. So basically, like, so Susan, the game you play, uh, will you will play it differently to how Gene plays his game, and that'll result in a, in your director's cut of the television show being different to to Gene's. Um, and also, you know, there's also uh, subtle differences that can occur in the game as well, like. Tiny things that you do or activate or find or influence um, can determine uh, different drop-in content in the episodes as well. And so over time, your direct, your full director's cut of the season uh, will cumulatively be quite different to uh, to Gene's. 
How? Um, wow. That takes I mean, a very yeah. smart computer to keep track of all of it. That's that is an incredible amount of of. Uh, I mean, just the the amount of planning that that must have taken to figure oh, out. Man. No one, no wonder your development cycle was three years. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, it, was longer than, it was longer than three years. I think it was, it was probably closer to four or four and a half. I think. Um, well, the conceptual stuff at the beginning, you know, and the design work, you know, before oh. anybody starts programming anything. Obviously, oh, absolutely. Obviously I mean, like we, uh, the time. like we were in the writer's room for, I think, uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 months getting the first draft of the story down to a point where, where we had a story that could branch, that could have drop in alternate content, um, and, and where, you know, you could have player agency over, mm-hmm. over things occurring in the story and the direction that the story took and building a story, um, that, that couldn't that continued to make sense and couldn't be broken by the player doing those things it took about twelve to eighteen months. It was it was really really complicated. Um, like I've, uh, I mean honestly, we there, like shorthand in the writers' room was like you know you'd be galloping along, um, you'd be liking you know what everybody was doing. You know we were marking out mapping all the stuff on whiteboards and smart film. Mm-hmm. You know uh, pulling eight hour days on this thing, but inevitably almost every single day like somebody would go uh or wait a minute or something and then everybody would just groan and then we would be walked through and then then uh-huh. some, then that person would walk us through step by step the it, chain of causality that if we go ahead with this great thing that we just fell in love with it you know it undermines the thing we set up in act one that is critical to act three that affects the dismount in act five uh-huh. and so now <laughs> we've got to decide if we want to keep this amazing thing and work around back. it or go back to yeah. square one. Oh, yeah totally yes. That's, so yeah, you, that sounds you like excruciating out. fun. It sounds like the most fun you can possibly have in a, in a, a writer's bullpen combined with the most excruciating pain. <laughs> yeah, it That's, was a bit like being in a foxhole. You, you do tend yeah. to bond with the people that you're going through uh-huh. this with. <laughs> it, um, it sounds like it sounds like a great experience. I mean, that's, uh, I used to work on adventure games and it was very much like that. You know, you, you, you design your, your subplots so that they were reasonably self-contained and then you figured out where to hook them together. It was like Lego, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I gotta tell you, like, I mean, uh, as a creative exercise, it was, it was unique. I I don't know if I'll ever go through anything like that ever again. Um, and mm-hmm. you know the the, com- it, the comparison to choose your own adventure or Telltale Soul games, um, those are valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that it was also uh, somewhat more complicated, um, simply because we were dealing with hard and fast rules with regards to causality, time travel, closed loops, mm-hmm. collapsed waveforms, um, and we couldn't we couldn't sort of do a a fast and loose approach to time travel. It's all it's all very much based in. In some some very concrete rules, you know, uh, one of the ones that I've, I've talked about elsewhere is the whole idea of closed loops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, for example, like you know, let's say let's say you and me, Gene, we've got a time machine, and you tell me that you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rob that bank, and I would tell you, no, you won't because you didn't. Right. And yeah, and so and that's the and and that's the kind of you know you demonstrably didn't. You're not sitting here with mm-hmm. like a million bucks, and you know that that bank remains unrobbed. So whatever happens, you don't wind up robbing that bank. And so what we had to do is we had to find a way to obey that particular law. And this law, I might add, is something that we came up with 
in conjunction with um, uh, a quantum physicist named uh, Suksu Resinen. Uh, I hope I'm getting his name right. Uh, he was uh, one of the guys who worked on the Large Hadron Collider um, for uh-huh. CERN, and he helped us formulate our time travel rules, how it could feasibly work, what a time machine might look like, how the time machine might work. Uh, you know, we got into the many worlds theory, um, the utility of black holes um, for this kind of thing. Uh, and so, uh, and one of the things that he settled on, that he, he told him basically his view was that, um, yeah, the whole collapsed waveform idea that you can't go back and really change time because everything's already been accounted for. And so the, the trick for us was, okay, well, how do you tell an engaging story with tension if you take for granted that the past can't be changed? And we spent a lot of time thinking about that, and it's uh, I think we did a pretty good job with it. And I get to explore that more in the book as well in, in Quantum Break Zero State. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the nice things about the book was the fact that um, because it's not... Uh, because it doesn't, uh, because it's, it doesn't have to sort of obey the same liberating constraints as video game development. Um, I could do certain things in the book that I couldn't do in the game, whereas the game can do certain things that I can't do in the book. And so, um, you know, we got to explore certain things that you know happened in the game, but weren't necessarily witness to fairly mm-hmm. large things. Um, and we also got to explore more of that, uh, that question of causality, how do we change the past? I mean, it's, it's no spoiler to say that one of uh, Jack Joyce's big motivations, the protagonist of the story, is the well-being of his brother, um, mm-hmm. as well as trying to prevent you know, the, the collapse of causality, um, the end of time, I think, as it's called in the, in the, in the game. Um, and you know, his, uh, his desire to protect his brother, to save his brother's life, is you know, undermined and stymied by the fact that he can't change the past. And in the entire game, this dude is the only guy who's bullheaded enough to say, well, you know, to hell with that. I'm going to do it anyway. And um, and through the course of the book, I actually get to explore how someone might be able to fly the universal laws in order to save a single human life. And that was that was that was a really fun part of it. That's the question of causality, um, closed loop caused out mm-hmm. causality. Um uh, has been played it, with in fiction and by a number of people in our recent past from uh, Doctor Who to Terry Pratchett, actually. That, yeah, that's true. But the uh, um, the question in my mind is, if you go back and change the past, haven't you simply forked a new potential reality rather than simply worked within a closed system? So... Okay, so if you go back and change the past, have you created another potential reality? So the way that it works in Quantum Break is you do create... you do. Okay, so timelines and alternate timelines are a very big part of Quantum Break, not because the characters go back in time and change events, but because the villain, Paul Serene, in, has the ability to see oncoming futures and then take action in order to make the future of his preference occur. So, uh, so with collapsed waveforms, basically the way and with um, with closed loops, basically the way that it works is that once a particular event is witnessed, that waveform collapses. Um, this is slightly above my pay grade, but it's sort of a Schrodinger's a cat sort of situation in the sense uh-huh. that 
as long as the cat's in the box, it's both alive and dead. Right. And it's only when you open the box that the waveform collapses. So right. Right. So so that. so for example, if you want to go back in time and change an event, the only way that you would be able to change that event within the within the rules of our world would be is if would be if you tried to alter an event that had that had never been actually witnessed by anybody. Because then it's fair game. But if the minute somebody witnesses it, then that waveform collapses and it becomes concrete. Okay. Or somebody but- slips the cat a sleeping pill. <laughs> it just looks yeah. dead. <laughs> it still have a pulse, but yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, I, okay. That works. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense, given given uh, my layman's understanding of, qu- of quantum physics, which is admittedly not very deep. It does mm-hmm. make sense. So, the uh, the book is um, a very long action sequence. <laughs> I mean, it's, it reads the, um, just so. Yeah. So the the trick with the book was, I mean, obviously, if you're going to write, um, so two things about writing the book. One, we knew it could be just a straight novelization of the game because why would you want to read just a retelling of a game you just played? Exactly. Um, and Sam Lake and I were talking about this probably from, I don't know, I think the third month that I was at Remedy. And uh, we knew a novel was a good idea, um, and he wanted me to write it. Um, and the question was, well, how are we going to do it? And as Sam says in the foreword, like he never really saw the, the point of a straight retelling either. Um, but what it was was because we had this, this many worlds thing going on, we have this alternate timeline thing going on, and because – there was so much stuff that we wanted to put in the story and there was so much stuff that, you know, was in the story that we had to remove for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. You know, we all, we all knew what was happening in the wings. We all knew what was happening behind the scenes and it kind of killed us a little bit that we, uh, that we couldn't, we couldn't show some of that. So that became fair game for the novel. Um, once the novel took advantage of the alternate timeline story. Now there's, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of, so as we were saying, like, I mean, uh, you know, one person's version of the game is a, is a parallel timeline to another person's version of the game. Um, so the novel doesn't just pre- the novel doesn't preference one of the branching timelines available in the game. It's its own timeline. Mm-hmm. It's the product. Its start point is influenced by causalities that occur way back in the past. Uh, causalities that aren't present in the game. So um, you know, there's a there's a, a brief subplot with you know a gangland figure. There's a bunch of new characters that are introduced. So, uh, but the story remains very familiar. It takes place um, over the same time period in the same geographic location, dealing with the same big beats, the same crisis, the same relationships. But it also runs to its own tension, um, and it's also got its own its own subplots and its own drives um, that it deals with as well. And in doing so, it gets to uh, explore issues and theories and concepts that the game doesn't. Um, and we get to see more um, of who these people are, how they tick, and um, and certain things that happen off camera in the game. We get to get a we, we get a very very good look at, um, including the actual end of time itself. Uh, certain things that happen with Beth. So you know, I mean, so so getting back to the point that the book is you know one long action mm-hmm. sequence. There is a lot of action in the book. Um, so the second thing we had to deal with, with with the book was well, there's a lot of action in the Quantum Break game. And a book can't just be, you know, Jack ran into this second warehouse and shot 23 dudes. I mean, that's just not, you know, that's not much of a story. Uh-huh. Um, 
So basically the novel was a chance to create a really fantastic Hollywood style action film that takes advantage not only of time travel, but time control and not just time control, but a sort of, a sort of epileptic time flow that degrades um, exponentially as the crisis worsens. So I got to stage and choreograph some really interesting action sequences that took advantage not only of like um, not only of three dimensional space and the capabilities of of the characters, but also taking advantage of a time flow that uh, slows, speeds up, moves backwards and forwards, scratches, is reliable, is unreliable, and um, the most satisfying part of that was was getting these characters to basically get to go judo, to get balletic, um, and to use that that chronological environment as much as the physical environment. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it was, it was like being able to direct um, direct an action film with um, no talent constraints, no budget constraints, no location constraints. Um, and the only criteria was just making sure that everything that was included drove the story and was a lot of fun. It's uh, one of the advantages of writing a novel. You don't have any of those constraints. It all does have to make internal sense. Mm-hmm. And um, well, so does the game. Well, yeah, the game does too. Or, or the player goes. I'm sorry. This is W. You know, WTF Whiskey Tango Foxtrot experience. <laughs> I'm not doing this. Um, but but, yeah. uh, but that's not a problem with this book. I think it's one that the video game players will love. It's very very. Oh, it's very very tight. It's extremely tight. I. It's like. Uh, most books, you know, sort of start out with uh, an introduction and your inciting incident doesn't really take place until, you know, 10 pages in or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, Quantum Break sort of doesn't give you the feeling that, I mean, it has the inciting incident in the same place in the first chapter, as most mm-hmm. books do, but it doesn't give you the feeling that you have seen it until after you've read like two or three chapters. <laughs> then you go, hey, wait. Because you're not sure which one of these things is the critical thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got this it's got this very uh very electric, jangly sort of um feel to it. Because of the characters, I mean they're uh they're erratic to start with. You know, the the mm-hmm. whole uh the approach to the storyline bleeds off into the characters and the characters are as jangly and erratic as the storyline is. And, um, you know, you have characters that you introduce that just sort of disappear and reappear many, many chapters later. Uh, The character of Zed, for example, is a puzzle, a puzzlement. She is an enigma wrapped in a pretty flowered dress actually no she isn't she is (laughs) but i assume uh when you saw her again it all made sense yes yes indeed cool because i'm gonna tell you zed was one of my favorite characters i really like zed um the uh one of the joys of um one of the joys of writing quantum break actually was um you know you know you've done really really well when you're writing a video game and, um, you know, you create a character or a scene or something like that. And over the course of the project, things always changed. They always changed, like, for, for whatever reason, practical reasons, whatever. 
and certain things have to be left by the roadside. And you know you've done really, really well when it, when a coder or a group of coders who generally just worry about coding and don't particularly care that much about story mm-hmm. go into bat saying, can we please keep this character? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Can> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's I know it was, it was it was it was it was really it was really lovely it, it and it, it happened at a meeting of the whole company that you know we we'd, we'd have a meeting once a week on a Monday where the whole company would get called in and we get up to date and just having like a voice or two from the back from you know from a coders you know saying in front of the whole company you know can we please keep like it was yeah, it was it was one of the high points of working there actually it was like success. <laughs> 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 yeah, when 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 the technicians are so sucked into it that it's real for them too, you know mm-hmm. you've done it right. <laughs> so, um, so the complexity of writing this is like writing a whole season of a television sh- show. Yeah, it's um, like, like every every chapter could be a, an episode in a, a TV serial. I know. Which is um, kind yeah, of leading me into really your other experience of writing it for a TV show. <laughs> Did you did you write the the, the uh, script for the live action shoot as well? Um, no, 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 that wasn't me. Um, okay. Basically, my, so my contribution to the uh, to the game, I was there. Like I said, I was there for two two and a half, maybe three years, working on QB. Um, uh, so uh, structure in terms of like structure, character, setting, location, history, uh, the MacGuffin. Um, uh, Big beats, action set pieces, locations like that. That's where you see my influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I stepped off the project um, in the last year uh, to go work on on something else. And um, uh, at that point, I think the script, uh, as as always happens, like the script goes through revisions and whatnot. So not a lot of my dialogue survived or anything like that. But in terms <laughs> of the structure and the characters and uh-huh. and the, the framework and the playground, like that's that's where you see my influence. At With least, the TV show, that was in the uh, game. You check the, yeah, sorry. At least in the game, and oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah the TV show was uh, was written by I think it was uh, uh, a couple of uh, writers in Los Angeles who worked closely with uh, with the, the Remedy Creative team to get it all synced up properly. The fact that this spans um, <laughs> so many geographic locations on the planet just fascinates uh-huh. me. I just. Um, Obviously, Microsoft is the release company, the, the distributor for the game, and um, and it's what is it? It's available. It's going to be available for PC, or it is available for PC, uh, Xbox One. Obviously, uh, do you know if it's available for the PS4 or not? Uh, okay, so unfortunately, it's not available for the PS4. Yeah, um, I, didn't, I wouldn't. Last so. I last I heard, if you buy an Xbox One version, you get a code for the PC version. Uh-huh. Um, so it's sort of a two-for-one deal there. Um, uh, in terms of complexity and what have you, uh, from what I understand, it's actually the single most expensive project in Finnish history, uh, for whatever goodness. that's worth, um, which I think is worth quite a bit. They've done quite well for themselves in the past. Um, the uh, Yeah, yeah, and, and Microsoft, was uh, who, who produced the... Um, who produced the project for us were massively supportive. In fact, like when you sign on um, with a new creative team, you never really know what you're going to get. And um, so uh, in May last year, when, when Sam said, did I still want to do the book? And I, I said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wound up sort of liaising between Remedy and Microsoft just in terms of um, just touching base because uh, basically um, 
the memory palace of the project that I had was uh, of the project as it stood, I think, probably as of May last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as that went forward, obviously that would change like through script rewrites and, and what have you. Um, and so I'd uh, keep in touch with my Microsoft contact and my Remedy contact, Sam, and what have you. Um, and the, honestly, seriously, the feedback was incredible. Um, it was uh, Sam was uh, gave me free reign, and um, my guy at Microsoft uh, had a very light touch, and all of his feedback was absolutely solid, which was a relief because, like I said, sometimes when you sign into a big corporation, you never really know what you're going to get. But it was a uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure to do. Very frequently, you get uh, somebody who's assigned to the project who doesn't really understand it, and then you're in the soup. Mm. You know, you're in the soup when that happens. But uh, it doesn't sound like you suffered that indignity. And uh, it was it was like flying, to be honest. Like <laughs> doing the book. I mean, stepping off the project and then being able to basically just hunker down in an apartment during a Helsinki winter, where like the, you know the sun was a distant memory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was 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 like it was like uh, it was like taking off lead shoes and leaping onto a stage. It was great. Yes, you mentioned uh, before the show that uh, you were something of a night owl, and I guess that kind of explains it. You know, in Helsinki, you would be about. There's no other the choice. There's no other choice. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, I'm from Australia, and mm-hmm. um, uh, so all we pretty much we've got two seasons. Pretty much, it's you know, it's hot and wet or hot and dry, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, and going to Helsinki was uh, a lot like stepping into Middle Earth because when I went over there for the for the recruitment meeting, it was the middle of spring, so everything was like luminous green and purples and blues and skies like I've never seen, and it was sun for like twenty two hours of the day and really temperate. It was amazing, How you know. And then glorious. winter hits and it suddenly goes from Hobbiton to Mordor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which awesome. is unfair. Which is unfair. I actually really, really love my first winter. Like it was a total wonderland. Uh-huh. But and and being nocturnal anyway, um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of loved it because for me, like once once it hits ten p.m., all my faculties really activate, mm-hmm. and suddenly I do my best work. And so yeah, that that first winter in. Um, in, in Helsinki was was really really magical, um, and Finns could and it was really weird too because I haven't had a lot of experience of snow up to that point. <laughs> so I, was, I, I, was, I was sitting at a bus stop um, when it started snowing and it was like oh my god and I was and I just I, I found myself like scrutinizing a snowflake on the sleeve of my jacket and then I realized there were like five Finns looking at me like I'd lost my mind. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> were they wrong? <laughs> Ah, flash forward two years. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. It doesn't snow much in California either, so I, I imagine it's probably a lot like Australia here. Yeah, in ways. In ways. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, they they appreciate their science fiction in in Finland. The uh, uh, not this year's, but next year's World Science Fiction Convention is going to be in Helsinki. So. Oh, yeah. So yeah, when, when you guys that. are up yeah, for the yeah. award, you'll be right there. <laughs> and this well, is from Tor, and this is from Tor Books. It's the book is published by Tor Books, which means there is a substantial chance that uh, your book will at least be examined for a nomination uh, for a Hugo well, Award. Uh, that would be, be uh, that would be incredible. Yeah, in, in, in particular because it is unusual in the fact that uh, it is a transmedia book, and Tor does not do transmedia books. I think this might be the first one they have ever done. 
at least to my knowledge, it's the first one they've ever done. What was it like working with Tor? Um, okay, I, I know that when I know that when a lot of people uh, are asked that question about the, the companies that they work with, there tends to be a lot of sort of smiling and glad handing. Mm-hmm. But I'm being absolutely sincere when I say it was amazing. Um, they um, the 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 editors and the publishers, well, the the the, the publisher. Uh, what am I saying? Sorry, backing up. The uh, the publicist uh, mm-hmm. and the support that they they threw at this was just incredible. I'm talking uh, excellent communication chain. And the other thing is too, like before I even came into contact with the publicist, I was drumming up publicity of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working out who I wanted to talk to, and you guys were on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, oh. and so when they came along about two weeks later, they had already fired off like just a fusillade of, of, of activity into uh-huh. like magazines and websites and podcasts. And then when I came along like a total amateur and said, Hey, how about all this stuff? They said, that's a great idea. Left onto that as well. And I've never been so engaged um, with the, with a publisher before in my life. It's just amazing. Those guys are incredible. We love uh, Diana Griffith. If you're listening to this at Tor we, Books, we love you. We love you. You're yeah. doing your you. job. They should give you a raise. Yeah, it's very- so Diana is Diana is just amazing. I she like yeah, just 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 amazing. It's like she never sleeps. Like I email and then being there's a response. It's just incredible. It, it, it seems to me that most of the publicists for publishers are women. And I I think it's because men would go nuts. I I don't <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think we could, you know, we don't have the temperament for it. We just our heads would explode. And I don't know how Diana keeps hers from exploding. So, um, I could tell you about the publicity business. It makes heads explode. And, and that's even handed. It is an equal opportunity head exploder across the genders. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's been my experience, though. You're absolutely right. Like, I mean, I've published with Penguin and Random House and Nat Tour. And yeah, it seems to be 90% women. And I could not tell you why that is. Yeah, I, I have no clue. But. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm glad it's that way because uh, we have these wonderful publishing houses to work with, and Tor is one of the best ones for science fiction. They have mm-hmm. I think they produce more Hugo winners than any other publisher. Well, they sure sent us some good ones. Oh uh, God, yes. Got two two of the novelists on this year's Nebula Ballot <laughs> were on this show, and I guess we should collect the set. Absolutely. <laughs> so what what other books have you done? You said you, you uh, worked with other so publishers. I'm, I'm, I'm probably best known for a book called uh, "The Music of Raises" um, that came out with uh, with uh, Random House Del Rey uh, in I think was it 2009? I think it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, it was shortlisted for it was triple nominated for the Aurealis Award here in Australia. Um, and so uh, and yeah, it had a, it had a lot of really good feedback. Neil Gaiman said some very flattering things about it. Um, Sean Williams, Storm Constantine. Um, uh, it's, it's it's very different to Quantum Break. Um, to Quantum Break's state, it's uh, basically it's uh, the story of a 200 year old bullet removal specialist from Vermont who makes a deal with a uh, a banished angel to be the greatest surgeon the world's ever known, and he kind of gets done on that deal, and uh, he basically wants out, but he has a conscience, and so he spends after searching for a century, he settles upon a brother and a sister and he stage manages their lives to groom one of them to be the right candidate to take over this power that he doesn't want 
mm-hmm. so that he can basically die and rejoin the woman he loves. And um, uh, the way I describe it is it's basically it's a, it's a horror story for kids or a fairy tale for adults, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah. That sounds fascinating. That sounds fascinating. I, I, your writing style is... Would you say that your writing style has changed from when you first started to where you are now and and in what ways kind of a question if it has it better have well of course (laughs) it it should it should have it should have changed but in what way do you think it has changed since you started well i guess it depends what you i don't know how you say it depends what you think of as when i started but um I think I'm. I think I'm adaptable. I'm adaptable, basically. So the, the tone of the tone and, and subject matter of raises is is different to uh, is different to quantum break zero state. Quantum break mm-hmm. zero state is not wanting to diminish it or anything. Uh, it's probably like a Jason Bourne with time powers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the music of raises is more um, sort of contemporary fantasy horror. Um, uh, I think uh, the music of raises has a more a slightly more poetic tone to it, probably. Mm-hmm. But the thing that um, my technique hasn't changed. If anything, I like to think that it's it's basically um, it's a constant refinement of this attempt to. So uh, Rudy Rucker um, basically coined this term uh, "eyeball kick." You guys are probably familiar with that. Um, the idea that you know, yeah, an eyeball kick is basically uh, a very tight sequence of very carefully chosen words. The, the fewer words, the better. That explode an image or a scene in a reader's mind. So you basically get maximum signal, minimum noise. Um, and in, and I find that that's the best, most effective way to basically make a reader feel like they're in the book, not reading the book. It's the best way to make the reader feel like they're, they're, they're witnessing something in real time and they're as adrenalized by it as they would be by watching an excellent film at the very least. Um, and so if you're talking about how's my, how's my style changed, I don't think that'll ever change because... Um, another thing that I take to heart is that, uh, you know, the old saw that, you know, um, every art form aspires to the condition of music and, mm-hmm. and music is basically emotional telepathy. And, um, and what I aspire to with the stuff that I do is that kind of emotional telepathy by high signal, low noise. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, the faster and the more efficiently the message and the feeling and the experience gets into the reader, the more real it's going to feel. And so, and so, Basically, my goal has always been to make sure that I have something to say, or you know, knowing what I want the reader to feel, and for there for, and for there to be a reason for that feeling, um, and the uh, the cumulative effect of all of these feelings and experiences that I that I build throughout the book culminates in the delivery of a message that then resonates once they put the book down, um, all by way of like you know really good entertainment, moving moments, that kind of thing. So in that sense, I don't, I don't think my technique has, my, uh, my style has changed because I think that will always be my focus. I don't see how, I don't see how that could not be my focus. It um, sounds like, term- it sounds like that's one of the major, you know, the major tools in your toolbox. So, yeah. And I want to yeah, play, I, and now I, I want to play music with you. <laughs> yeah. Are you, you're a musician as well? I wish I was. It's, it's my great, it's my great unfulfilled dream is to, uh, is to be a musician. Um, I just never had any, uh, I never had any, any skill with it. Oh, oh, that's a shame. I, I, yeah. I bet you'd be pretty good at it. Or songwriting. Uh, 
maybe I should give it a shot someday. Um, I, I've got to, I've got to admit, I'm one of those people who, when I focus on something, I tend to let, I tend to let it get in the way of everything else. Um, uh-huh. uh, and uh, yeah, if I ever hit a point where I'm not kind of throwing everything else out the window so I can find more time to write, then I can see myself turning my hand. <laughs> well, when you when you take up songwriting and when you rec- have something recorded, please send it to us because we will want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind after I've sat on it for a month and I make sure it's not as embarrassing as heck. I mean, we do run a science fiction radio station after all. How many of those are there? <laughs> uh, three. <laughs> yeah, three, two. I think one of them just dropped off the face of the earth. Sorry about that. Yeah. I think you guys are doing very well for yourself. You were telling me a bit about how it was all going for you before we started, and it's very impressive. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, you know, we started off pretty pretty weak and pretty slow, and it's... It, uh, uh, it's it's a niche, okay. It is. Find and, find a market and fill it. Yeah, isn't isn't that the find philosophy of twenty first century entrepreneurialism? Though is to is to do that, find a niche and go deep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but uh, if you can make people happy doing it, there's nothing wrong with that. Oh hell no, that's a, that's a yeah exactly. So now that this book is done and it's out, are you are they is Tor sending you on um, book tours? Uh, no, <laughs> no, uh, basically, um, uh, not while there's an internet. Whole... Exactly. I'm doing a whole bunch of interviews, a whole bunch of press. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of interviews and articles, um, out there already. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, I'm talking to my agent and, uh, I've already got the next book planned out. Um, I'm talking to Microsoft, um, seeing if anything else might be in the pipe. You never know. Um, but uh, I definitely, uh, I, I have one of my own. My, my next book will be my own. It'll be an original. Yay. An original book. And um, I'm pretty excited about it, actually. So I want to get it done as uh, quickly as I can. I'm thinking it'll be about sixty to 80,000 words. I'd like to get it done fairly quickly um, and get it to my agent and get it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk more about it, but... Uh, I'm kind of superstitious like that. Yeah. No, that's, well, that's very reasonable and spoilers. good. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Okay. Um, how many books a year do you write? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> or how uh, many books so my, do you work on simultaneously? And <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, uh, okay, so the plan now is basically to... Um, always have one on the go and when one gets released you know immediately get started to work on the on the other um there was a bit of a hiatus uh between writing um the music of razors uh life got in the way basically um family stuff and what have you um but uh the plan going forward barring any other engagements with uh with game developers is to be writing constantly so do one book get it out there while it's being dealt with, get started on the next one. What a delightful way to live your life. It's pretty great. I'm, I take none of it for granted. I take none of it for granted. It's pretty great. Thank you for joining us this week on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. We are talking to Cam Rogers, author of Quantum Break Zero State based on the time-amplified blockbuster game, and since it is being released by Microsoft for the Xbox One, 
and PC. It is sure to be a blockbuster. Uh, the game is produced by Remedy Studio, Remedy Entertainment in Helsinki, and uh, the book is a tour paperback, uh, and it is released now. You can go find it on your bookshelves now. Uh, yep, yeah, it's paperback, it's hardback, it's ebook, it's iBook. You can find it pretty much anywhere. That's awesome. It is. It was such a pleasure speaking with you this evening. Thanks, guys. I had a really good time. This was fantastic. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 133 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 23rd, 2016, with your hosts, Susan L. Fox and Gene Turnbow. Our guest this evening has been transmedia writer and novelist Cam Rogers, author of Quantum Break Zero State from Tor Books. This episode will air again on April 24th, 2016 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday and the following Saturday. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on kryptonradio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 to $5 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. Okay, done.